You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Alrighty, we studied John's Gospel. We're going to be in it for a whole year. It's a great book of the Bible. We're in John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, looking at successful people need Jesus. And the people that are coming to Jesus, uh, they're moral, they're spiritual, they're religious, but they don't know Jesus. It just goes to show you can be a moral person, but you still need Jesus. You can be a spiritual person, but you still need Jesus. You can be a religious person. And you still need Jesus. And we learn, first point, that redemption requires repentance. And we're going to see the earliest days of Jesus' ministry. Today, Christianity is the biggest movement in the history of the world. A few billion people alive on the earth claim to be worshipers and followers of Jesus. Christianity has spread to more nations, impacted more lives, and been the longest lasting, greatest impacting ministry or movement of any kind in the history of the world. And today we're going to go back to the very beginnings of Jesus' ministry. When he has just a small group of disciples, he's beginning his teaching, he's beginning his baptizing, his ministry is just a few months old. And this is very helpful for us at our church. Our church is 18 months old. We're still in the early phase and days, and that's where we see the ministry of Jesus. So we'll pick it up in John 3, 22 through 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. That's what we're going to talk about, baptizing, or as my kids used to call it, baptizing. Uh, baptizing. So we're talking about baptizing. John, that's Jesus' cousin. So here's John. John and Jesus are cousins. Uh, John is a few months older than Jesus. Uh, They grow up in a loving relationship. John's family was a ministry family. His daddy was the equivalent of a rural pastor, a priest. His mom came from the line of priests. So family ministry. This is a ministry family. John is destined by God to rise up, to preach the gospel of repentance, to invite people, to prepare their hearts for the coming of Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He had kickstarted his ministry and he is off to a rocket start. He is popular. He is well-known. He is trending on Twitter. He is a really big deal. His YouTube channel has exploded. He's doing great. His cousin, Jesus, comes behind him just a few months younger and his ministry starts a few months later. So at this point, John's ministry is launched. Jesus' ministry is launching. John's ministry is well-known. Jesus' ministry thus far has been relatively unknown. Uh, He remained there and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Inan near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. John's ministry lasts less than a year. He's ultimately gonna be thrown in prison and he's going to be beheaded because that's the only way to shut a true prophet up. You You gotta off with the head. And that's what they do to John. That's the only way they can get him to stop preaching. At this point in the story, he is still alive. And what Jesus and John are both doing, they're preaching and then baptizing, the very thing we're gonna do today. And baptizing is something that shows externally what God has done internally. The Bible says repeatedly, including in other accounts of this season of John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, here's the process, here is the pattern, repent and be baptized. That's what the Bible says over and over. Repent and be baptized. Repentance is something that happens internally. Baptism is something that happens externally. Repentance is this acknowledgement that I am no longer the highest authority in my life. That ultimately it is a change of ownership and it is a change of authority. Some of you have issues with authority. You will not submit to any authority. You will not acknowledge or recognize any authority. To be a Christian, you have to acknowledge that God is an authority. You are not, that he has charge over your life. You do not. And that ultimately your allegiance, your alliance is ultimately to him. And that's what repentance means. It is an internal emotional, mental, spiritual transition at the deepest level of being. It is saying, I believe in Jesus. 
Jesus is in authority. Jesus is the one that I submit to. Jesus is the one that I surrender to. Jesus is the one that I follow. Jesus is the one that I want to be like. Jesus is the one that I want to be with. That is internal. That is repentance. I want to walk away from my old life and I walk with Jesus into a new life. Repentance is internal. Baptism is external. And it is the outward showing of something that God has already done in you. In the same way, um, this is a ring and it shows that I'm married to Grace. We've been married for 25 years. When Grace and I married, it was internal, made a covenant, made a commitment with her and God. Something in my heart, something in my mind, something in my soul that I would be devoted to her, do relationship with her, be faithful to her, build a life together with her. And then we put rings on our finger as an outward symbol of an inward commitment to a covenant. Baptism is kind of like that. And I might add as well, so is communion. Once you commit yourself relationally to Jesus, internally, there is an external demonstration of an inward devotion. That's what baptism is. And what baptism is, baptism is identifying and affiliating yourself with Jesus. So Jesus lived without sin. He died, he was buried. And then he was raised to newness of life. And Jesus is the precedent and pattern for our baptism. We acknowledge that when Jesus died, he died for us. And when he rose, he rose for us. And that one day we will die and rise to be with him, like him, for him forever. That's what baptism is showing. Just like water cleanses us from filth, so Jesus cleanses us from the filth of sin. And so this issue of baptism has been somewhat debated in Christian history. There are godly people who would disagree, but we baptize by dunking people. There are occasions where it may be okay to what some would call sprinkle or pour. Um, I'll give you an example. Some years ago, I was doing a hospital visit. Somebody was on their deathbed, hooked up to all the machines. And I tell them, you know, it looks like we're in the fourth quarter, coming near the end of the game here. If you don't give your life to Jesus, you're going to go to hell. This is not what I want for you. Is this what you want for you? They said, no. I've rebelled against God my whole life. I've been foolish and stubborn. I know who Jesus is. I need to surrender and get saved right now. So they prayed to receive Christ. Then they asked, can I be baptized? Answer, well, this is complicated because we're in the hospital and you're hooked up to a lot of machines. And if we dump you and all the machines in the tank, we'll probably hasten your trip to Jesus and, and I'll probably go with you. So I don't know how to do this, right? So, so I'll, I'll pour or sprinkle a little bit of water on you. And you know, God knows the heart and this is the best we can do. Uh, here, however, they are baptizing because water was a lot of water to, to dunk people, to dunk people. And so baptizing, baptism means to plunge, dip, or immerse. In the Danish Bible, they referred to John as John the Dipper. That's how they, that's how they refer to him. In ancient literature that is of the same language, the ancient Greek, when a ship was out at sea, let's say it sunk, they would say, oh, that one got baptized, right? So they got submerged. So that's how we perform baptism. That's why we have a baptismal here today. Some of you are gonna get baptized. Some of you didn't even know you were gonna get baptized. God didn't tell you because you wouldn't come. He just told you you're gonna get baptized. You say, I'm not ready, we're ready. I don't have a change of clothes. We have a change of clothes. We have a t-shirt, we have shorts. You don't, you know, you could do it with clothes on. That's how we prefer it. And we'll give you a towel to dry off afterward. Okay, and so we're gonna do baptisms today because that's part of what it means to be a Christian is to identify yourself with a death, burial, resurrection of Jesus to make an outward demonstration of an inward devotion. And that is done by baptism in water. And what it shows is this, Jesus died. And when Jesus died, my old life got buried. Who I was, what I thought, what I did, what I craved, that is buried, that is dead. I leave that there, it is dead. And now I have a new life, I'm a new person. I'm walking with a resurrected Jesus. I have new desires. And here's the good news. Some of you are trying to fix your life. You need to bury it. Some of you are trying to hide your life. You need to bury it. Some of you are trying to manage your life and you need to bury it and give yourself and your sin to Jesus and then get up and move forward and get a brand new life. That's, that's exactly what we're all about. That's exactly what Jesus' ministry is all about. And so it starts with baptism, committing yourself to Jesus, and then joining a church or a ministry. And the next point is that ministry requires humility. 
John 3, 25 through 30. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. What you're gonna see is this, they're having a little theological table tennis. They're disagreeing. Ultimately, the issue is jealousy. Sometimes when you're jealous of a church, you're jealous of a ministry or you're jealous of a person, you just start getting a little picky. You look for some fault or flaw and that's all you talk about. That's all you talk about. Well, you know what they said, you know what they did. And, you know, I disagree with them. And I heard at that church or in that ministry or that pastor said this and that, and, you know, they're not perfect like us. And so we criticize them. That there is here a creeping jealousy between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, and it is hidden in some sort of secondary, tertiary theological issue. There are issues that are important. Here at the Trinity Church, we call them closed-handed issues. They're really important. There are also open-handed issues that good godly people who believe the Bible can disagree on. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. What that means is some things are more important than other things. Okay? And here they pick something that's really an open-handed issue and they're nitpicking over that because ultimately they're jealous. You just need to know that this is true in ministry. This is true in business. This is true in relationships. Sometimes we're jealous because someone else is succeeding or they have or do something that we wish we could do. And what we do, we start to become critics of them rather than celebrating with them. And it is a problem in the soul. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom, to whom you bore witness, who's that? Jesus. They're gonna talk trash about Jesus. Some people still do. Some people still do. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Oh, John, your cousin, he's trending on Twitter. His Facebook page is blown up. He's got a huge list of people that are signing up for his newsletter. It's crazy. Some of the people that were in our ministry are in his ministry. We are in a decline cycle financially. It's not looking very good. So you got to do something about Jesus. He's a real problem. You ever heard or seen this in a ministry? Never? Well, then you're new, brother, okay? Uh, You're brand new. This is your first day. (laughs) There's a little bit of jealousy. There's a little bit of jealousy. Story continues. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, he said, I told you, I'm not the Christ but I have been sent before him. The one who is the bride and the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Here's what John's saying. He used his analogy. He said, you know what? If you show up at a wedding and you see the bride and the groom and they sort of get shoved to the side because one of the groomsmen makes it all about him, that's awkward, amen? How many of you brides say that'd be very awkward? I didn't say this in the first service. I shouldn't say it in this service, but I will tell you a story, okay? Um, One of the weirdest weddings I ever had, brand new pastor in my 20s, don't really know how this works. I show up to an outdoor wedding on a fairly warm day and I go check in with a groomsman and they're, you know, complaining because they have to wear clothes that have buttons and stuff and and the shoes don't work. And so they're having that conversation. And then I go over to check on the bride and the bridesmaids. And then this bar shows up. They decided to have an open bar at their wedding, okay? Don't, don't, don't. Open bar means everybody gets to drink as much as they want. And I'll just tell you, not everybody's Jesus and knows their limits. So what happens is I go back to the groomsmen and and they open the open bar before the wedding. Yeah, you don't even need to be a Christian to see this is gonna end badly. This is gonna end... It's gonna be a rollover in the ditch and a fire. That's how this is gonna go. So I go back to the groomsmen. I'm like, hey, where are they? They're like, oh, they're getting a drink before the wedding outside in the sun. So I'm up officiating the wedding. One guy is one of the groomsmen, totally drunk. The whole wedding. He's the only one on a ship at sea in a major storm. The rest of us are on dry land. He's like, so what do you think everybody's doing? Watching the bride and groom? No, they're watching this bobblehead Bob over here with his cummerbund about ready to go down. So he becomes the star of the show. At some point, I kid you not, he lost his way and careened into the groom and slammed the groom into the bride, right? 
If he was a linebacker, it would have been acceptable. He was not a linebacker, he was a groomsman. So now I have, I kid you not, the the bride is going away and down. Now he is at the center. I'm a new pastor, I'm like, I don't have security, I didn't know we would need this. He's laying on the ground, the groom is trying not to fall over, and there goes the bride. Okay, so somebody comes to help him up and take him away, okay? So then I get the bride and the groom back up to the front. I'm thinking, oh, I gotta get this over with. This guy, I kid you not, he goes and gets another drink. He doesn't know what time it is, what planet we're on. He knows none of this. He comes running out as we're in the middle of the wedding to make a toast. He's like, I wanna make a toast. He stands in front of the bride and the groom. Nightmare? Yeah, that's it, okay. How many of you brides would run over to the cake, grab the knife and stab the groomsman, okay? I'm not saying it's right, but I withhold all judgment, okay? Uh, What this groomsman did, he made the whole wedding about him, about him. And what John is saying is, I'm not like that. Jesus is a groom, the church is like a bride and John's like, I'll just stay over here. I'm not gonna photobomb the wedding. My job was to help Jesus get to the bride, help Jesus love the bride, help Jesus enter into relationship with the bride. Once the bride and groom came together, the groomsman's job is, he's done. He's not like, cool, we're going on the honeymoon. No, he's done. He's done, his part is done. That's what John is saying. What this is, is humility. Humility, it's humility. And what's happening is John started his ministry and now his people are Jesus' people. You know what? Every minister should have the same heart. Any people that are our people, they're Jesus' people. And what happens here, people go from John's ministry to Jesus' ministry and then some of John's leaders arrive and they say, what's wrong here? Something is wrong. This is bad. This should not happen. And when you have that attitude, you think, okay, Well, is it the leader that is bad? Is it the ministry that is bad? Or is it the person that is bad? Then we start to assign blame. How many of you have been in church or ministry and you've seen this? And you still have a nervous eye twitch and PTSD, okay? You still got that. Because this is what happens. Let me ask you this. Jesus and John, are either of them bad leaders? Say no. No, you're totally right. They're both good leaders. Jesus is God and Luke, Chapter seven around verse 25, Jesus says that the greatest man who's ever lived is John. So let's just say they're both good leaders. Do they both have good ministries? Yeah, they're saying the same thing and baptizing. The people that went from John's ministry to Jesus' ministry, is there any indication they were bad people? No. So sometimes, or maybe even oftentimes, when someone transitions from one ministry to another, one church to another, it's not bad, it's good. It's good. And it is They were needed to help John, and now they're needed to help Jesus. It's it's really that simple. It's not that the people are bad. It's not that the ministries are bad. It's not that the leaders are bad. It's just they were needed here. Now they're needed here. Now, let me me say this. Before we moved to the Valley and contemplated planning this church, I flew down and met with a lot of ministry leaders and pastors. And I said, you know, I wanna be part of the big C, capital C church. See, because we look at all of our local churches, I think Jesus looks at the whole thing and says, that's my church. So they need a guy who plays guitar and they need somebody who can count money. So we're gonna swap. We're gonna move some people around here because every church has certain needs. And sometimes I need to move my people around because ultimately Jesus sees all the churches as his church, okay? And so when we first considered moving here, met with some of the pastors and leaders and said, would you welcome us to the Valley? Answered their questions, got to know them. They loved us. They prayed for us. Some really meaningful relationships were built. We moved down and I've been meeting with pastors. I've lost count. It was a hundred pastors I'd met with um, since we moved here. And that was a long time ago. So it's probably maybe 200 now. And, uh, And I see a great love and unity among churches and ministries in the Valley that is quite frankly, very unusual. And I'm very, very grateful for it and, and want to be uh, a positive contributor and part of that. And so we started a little pastor's cohort to bring pastors together to love and serve them. I have a great heart for pastors and their families. 
And when we went to start the Trinity Church, there were a lot of churches praying for us, including churches in the valley. A long list of pastors called and asked, how can we pray? What do you need? Without even asking, well over a dozen, maybe closer to two dozen churches from around the valley in the world sent money so we could renovate and at least make it functional. We still got a lot left to do. That was very generous. That's like John saying, how could we help? How could we help? How could we help? Um, Curtains, chairs, kids' toys, kids' climbing toy, some of the sound equipment, stuff all over the place was actually given by other churches in the valley. So I'll never, I heard one person, they were kind of complaining about a church while their kid was playing on the play toy. I said, you're complaining about the church that gave us the play toy that your kid is on. You know, they're like, oh, yep, exactly. Okay. So, so, so we want to be people who have John's heart. And we say, you know what? We want to love, care, bless, serve, give. And I want you to know that at the Trinity Church, a lot of churches have done a lot of really wonderful things for us. And so we want to speak well, we want to be a source of rich blessing, and we want it in our heart to be a generous people toward other churches and ministries. And that's John's heart. That's John's heart. And that's humility. That's what John is, in fact, modeling. Now, let me say this about humility. The root word of humility literally means to know your place. So Jesus needs to be humble to know that his place is as the senior leader and the savior, He's got to be humble enough to assume this significant senior leadership position. John's place is to be in a secondary position of providing a beginning to Jesus' launching. John needs to be humble enough to accept and know his place. Jesus needs to be humble enough to accept and know his place. The key for you and I is to figure out, Lord, what is my place? and to be humble and to be faithful and to enjoy that place. And sometimes God will have you in one place and move you to another place. Uh, Some of you were great leaders and great contributors in other churches and ministries. And you showed up to Trinity and you realized there's a need and God positioned you here. And maybe someday he'll transition you elsewhere. Wherever you go, just be a blessing. I was talking to a pastor in the Valley recently. I was speaking at a pastor's event with some other guys. And there's a pastor of a church and it's it's a really wonderful church. And Um, when we moved here, him and his wife took Grace and I out to lunch and they loved us and prayed for us and they're very dear people. And he said, how's it going at Trinity? I said, it's going really good. He's like, we've been praying for you, we're following. I said, thank you so much. And he said, oh, and there was a couple in our church that's now transitioned to your church. And he said, they're wonderful people. I said, good, send more. That's amazing, you know, send more. And uh, he said, they've been with us for many years. He said, they give, they serve, they take burdens. They are a huge blessing. He said, I hold them in the highest regard. They're a very wonderful couple and family. And he said, I heard that they came to your church. And I said, yeah. He said, do you know why they came? I said, why? He said, because they see a need and they wanna help. And he said, I really miss them. He said, but I'm really glad you have them. They'll be a great blessing to you. And I said, well, thank you for you know, helping to develop them. And thank you that we now benefit from this wonderful family. And he looked at me and he said something to this effect. He said, uh, well, all the people are Jesus people. They're not your people. They're not my people. They're his people. I thought, boy, that, I, I need to write that down. You know what? People don't belong to ministers and ministries. People belong to Jesus. And Jesus can move them from one ministry to another, depending upon where they're needed. And I told him, I said, you know what? Those people really are awesome and wonderful and we really do love them and they are a blessing. And many of you are like that. Okay, now, but sometimes if we're not humble, we can get jealous of the success of others rather than celebrating the success of others. Let me tell you three things that humility um, produces. Number one, it produces contentment, not entitlement. Humility produces contentment, not entitlement. Here's how, here's how he says it. Um, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. That's contentment, not entitlement. Entitlement is, I deserve more. I should have more. I should get more. And I've told you the line at our house. Our ho- our, our, the line at our house is, it's better than hell. That's the line at our house, right? We deserve what? Hell. So it's like, what's for dinner? Chicken. I don't want chicken. I hate chicken. It's, it's better than hell. 
we're, we're roasting the chicken, not you. There's a lot to be grateful for here. A lot to be grateful for, right? If you start with, I deserve hell, you'll find that you're grateful for everything. I have the flu. At least I don't have the flu in hell. That's amazing, right? So contentment is the result of humility. Entitlement is the result of pride. And let's just be honest. We all struggle with contentment and we all struggle with humility. And, and, and contentment means, I, I would just ask you this question. How much money is enough? How much food is enough? How much alcohol is enough? Right? How much praise is enough? How much influence is enough? How much power is enough? How big of a home is enough? How new of a car is enough? Right? At what point do you say, thank you? Instead of saying, give more. John says, everything we have comes from heaven. Everything. You brushed your teeth this morning. At least I hope you did for the sake of the person next to you. But where did your toothbrush come from? From the Lord. You put your shoes on. Those are from the Lord. Everything you have is from the Lord. And if you acknowledge that everything is a gift, it helps to breed an attitude of gratitude. Like, hey, thanks, I'm not in hell. That's awesome. So firstly, humility will produce contentment, not entitlement. Number two, humility will produce joy, not jealousy. Here's what John says. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. How many of you, if your organization, your business, your ministry was in a decline cycle, people were going elsewhere, your revenue was down, how many of you would not buy a cake, blow a kazoo and celebrate? He celebrates. He says, my joy is complete. You know what? Jesus is launching and I am rejoicing. If there is pride, and let's just say we all struggle with pride. Can we just say that? Let's just say we all struggle with pride. None of us can ever say, I used to struggle with pride. Thankfully, I have overcome that. I now have a website, humbleme.com, where I... I I record in great detail all of my humility and all of my humble endeavors. There are photos, testimonies. I'm really proud of it. You know, it's something we're always fighting against and struggling against, okay? But we can never say I'm humble. All we can say is I'm a proud person pursuing humility by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all we can ever say. Okay, but what happens here is John's, Some of his followers, they're jealous and John is joyful. If you find yourself being jealous of others, there's something wrong in your soul. They got married. They got divorced. That's not right. I should have one or the other, right? I'm jealous, right? You can get jealous of other people when you should be rejoicing for other people. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We're not to mourn with those who are rejoicing. Okay? Humility will allow contentment over entitlement. It will permit joy over jealousy. And ultimately, um, humility allows us to constantly do battle against pride. As I told you, humility means to know your place. Here's what John says. He must increase, I must decrease. It's humility, not pride. John doesn't say, I was here first. These are the people that I gathered. This is the money that I raised. This is the ministry that I launched. He says, less of of John more of Jesus. I decrease, he increases. If you and I would pursue this attitude in relationship to Jesus, we would see a profound healing at the level of the soul. Okay? Jesus, what would make you famous? What would make you joyful? What, what do you want? What is your will? Jesus, how do I see you as you truly are? bigger than I think you are? How do I decrease and stop making myself the center 
and let you increase because you truly alone should be the center. C.S. Lewis, I believe, says it this way. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now, let me make a, a leader pivot here, just an observation. How many of you are leaders? Your coaches, parents, teachers, business leaders, ministry leaders, you got kids. How many of you lead somebody, right? You lead somebody, okay. Culture in a family, a ministry, or a business, any organization, it, it is the result of two things, what you teach and what you tolerate. Culture that is set is the result of what you teach and what you tolerate. True or false, John teaches humility. He teaches humility. And what's happening here is some of the leaders come to him and they're being proud, not humble. If he tolerates that attitude, he will transform their culture. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you got a couple of kids and you teach them this is how we behave. You let one of those kids just dis- completely rebel, not behave. What did the other kids learn? It's okay to rebel because exceptions to rules quickly reveal that there are no rules. Okay? How many of you have seen this in business? Everybody needs to behave this way. Here's the employee manual, except for Bob. Bob's just a piece of work, so Bob gets to write his own manual. We let Bob kind of say and do whatever Bob wants to do. Pretty soon, the culture is what you tolerate. Not just what you teach, what you tolerate. One of the most important things that a leader does, they set culture by what they teach and what they tolerate. John teaches humility. Some of his leaders are being proud. If he tolerates that attitude, he will end up with a sick culture that is contrary to what he is teaching because it's undermined by what he's tolerating. So he corrects it. No, we're humble, not proud. We celebrate, we don't criticize, right? We don't have an attitude of entitlement. Maybe we had this much, now we have this much. We only have whatever God decided he would give us and we need to say thank you and do the best with the opportunity that he's provided. Now, let me... uh, Let me say this as well. What about relationships? Here's Jesus and John, and then some of John's leaders. I wanna talk about humility and pride in relationships. Here's why. Um, Two proud people end up in a head-on collision and no airbag deploys. I, however, I've been doing this a while. I don't see a lot of war between the humble and the humble. I don't. Relationship problems often start with pride and they're, they're resolved and solved by humility. So two proud people, they end up having a competitive relationship. I'm smarter than you, I win, you lose. Nope, round two, I'm winning, you're losing. Competitive, 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 lot of conflict. I'm gonna be domineering, I'm gonna be overbearing. No, I'm gonna be domineering, I'm gonna be overbearing. How many of you, I just explained your marriage, all right? Here's a healing moment for you. You're both wrong. See, you're looking at your spouse saying, you're wrong. And then they're looking at you saying, you're wrong. And Pastor Mark's looking at you both saying, you're wrong. Okay, that's the truth. Two proud people cannot have a healthy relationship. Also, a proud person and a humble person, that ends up in an abusive relationship. I'm domineering, overbearing, and you yield and surrender. I always win, you always lose. I always get my way, you never get your way. A healthy relationship is only possible when there are two humble people or two people that are pursuing humility by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a healthy relationship. Let me ask you this with John and Jesus. Do they have a proud, proud relationship? No. Do they have a proud, humble relationship? No. They have a humble, humble relationship. So they have a healthy relationship. John's disciples come in and they say, we are proud. Now that's not what they're saying but that's the reality. And John says, no, you can't have that kind of relationship with me or with Jesus or with anyone else. He is humble. We need to be humble so that the relationship can be healthy. Does this make sense? Sometimes people say, we need to change our relationship. Well, first we need to change our heart. Because if 
one will pursue humility and the other pursue humility, then God will grant help. God will grant help. So it starts with repent of sin, believe in Jesus, be baptized. It pivots and transitions to be involved in a church or a ministry, to be effective at ministry requires humility. And then it, it pivots and transitions again to life with Jesus and what this means. Next slide, please. And he tells us to think kingdom down, not culture up. This is a big, huge mega theme here at the Trinity Church. Okay. Here's how he says it. John 3, 31 through 35. He who comes from above is above all. That's kingdom. Above, 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 that's kingdom. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's culture. That's culture. That's natural, not supernatural. He who comes from heaven is above all, Jesus. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up a lot, and I want you to see the whole Trinity here. You're at the Trinity Church. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God, three persons, gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Do you see it? Father, Son, Spirit. Right there's the Trinity. God is by nature and essence relational. God is by essence and nature humble. Jesus comes to bring the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to embody the values of the kingdom because he's the king of the kingdom. And what we are taught here is there really only are two ways to live. Culture up um, of the earth, the earth, earthly. This is how the natural person naturally thinks and naturally processes reality in life. Earthly people don't pray asking, thy will be done. Earthly people do not love the Bible and submit to its teaching. Earthly people are pursuing pride, not humility. Earthly people make themselves the center of their reality and they're not seeking for Jesus to be the center of their reality. This can manifest itself in a multitude of cultures, but ultimately it's just all unspiritual. It's all earthly, it's all carnal, it's all fleshly. It is all destined to burn in the end Because ultimately there will be a day when all of the cultures go away and all that we're left with is the kingdom of God. And what he says is that that is of above, uh, from above, that is kingdom of God. The kingdom of God values humility, not pride. It honors the word of God, not the words of mere men. It is in obedience to God, not serving of self. It is seeking to love and to serve generously and graciously without taking and fighting arrogantly and selfishly. There is a great distinction and division between the cultures of the earth and the kingdom of God. And so as God's people, we need to understand, and if you are a child of God, you're a citizen of heaven, that this world may be your your residence, but ultimately the kingdom of God, that is your citizenship. It's not gonna be like this forever. There will be a day when the kingdom of God comes because Jesus, our King, returns. And he unveils and he begins his kingdom right here on the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so for you and I to be citizens of the kingdom, to be living kingdom down, not culture up, seeking to answer that prayer of Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we need to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus lives. So you and I, when we belong to Jesus, we receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we get to live a new life, a kingdom life in relationship with our King. And I want you to know that this is the best life and this is the only life. And this is the life that I just so much want for you. How many of you right now, you're just sick of the options that the culture gives. Anyone else sick of it? Anyone else watch the news, throw up in your mouth and pray for the rapture? It's just not going well. Because it's earthly, it's of the earth, it's unspiritual, it's carnal. It's what sinners do when they do their best, which only produces the worst. The option is the king, the kingdom is coming and the cultures are fading and ending. That's Jesus' point. So he starts with baptism, repent of sin, trust in him. 
He then moves to ministry. Find a church or ministry, pursue humility. And then as you live your life and make your decisions, what am I gonna do financially? What am I gonna do relationally? What am I gonna do maritally? What am I gonna do parentally? What am I gonna do vocationally? What am I gonna do sexually? I'm not starting culture up. I am starting kingdom down. Jesus in your presence together forever. What will this look like? And that's how I want it to start to look right now. And then he proceeds into the next point that ultimately all of this culminates eternally in John three thirty six, eternal life. Whoever believes in the son has what? Eternal life. Let me say this. Eternal life is not something that begins on the day that you die. It's something that begins on the day that you meet Jesus. See, what sometimes we tell people, receive Jesus and you'll go to heaven when you die. Is that true? It's true. But people are like, I'm not dying. So it doesn't seem to be something for today. Eternal life does not begin the day you die. It begins the day you meet Jesus. So, Let me tell you this, eternal life culminates on the day you die. But if you only think that eternal life is for your death, then you're only thinking that you should become a Christian at the finish line, not the starting line. That Christianity is for old people, not young people. It's for people who are near the end and and not near the beginning. Let me say this to you. I wanna say this carefully. I do believe in eternal life. I believe that because of Jesus, when I die, I will be in God's presence and really excited about it forever. But even if there was no heaven, even if upon death I cease to exist, I would still want to be a Christian in this life because life with Jesus is the best life. Life with Jesus is the best life. Life with Jesus saves me from myself. Life with Jesus changes how I think, it changes how I desire, it changes how I live. There is not one day with Jesus that I regret that I was with Jesus. There is not one day of my life that would have been better if Jesus were not in it. There is not one moment of my life that would have been improved if Jesus were absent. Eternal life is the life of God flooding and invading and overtaking your life. And it is a quality of life and a duration of life. It's a quality of life before you die and it's a duration of life that continues after you're dead. Here's what I wanna tell you. Every day with Jesus is a good day. Now it may not be an easy day, but it's a much better day than that day being lived without Jesus, amen? And God's people know that and God's people feel that. So for the Christian, I always like to tell you, this life is as close as you will ever get to hell. And I love you, but non-Christian, this life is as close to heaven as you will ever get. That's the point of John 3.36. Eternal life, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the, read it. Didn't say it very enthusiastically. Pastor Mark, are you gonna yell at us? For sure. We're gonna talk about the wrath of God. People don't talk about the wrath of God. They don't preach the wrath of God. They don't proclaim the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a mega theme in your Bible. When talking of God's attributes, the most commonly mentioned attribute of God is God's holiness, his goodness, his purity. God is holy, we are unholy, you are unholy. God is good, we are bad, you are bad. God is light and we are dark. God's wrath is his justice only, fully, continually, eternally. It is the absence of his love. It is the absence of his grace. It is the absence of his mercy. The punishment always fits the crime. God is perfectly just. As there are varying degrees of blessing in heaven, there are varying degrees of cursing in hell. Jesus speaks of hell more than anyone in the Bible. Hell is not the absence of God. It is the absence of God's love. 
It is the absence of God's grace. It is the absence of God's mercy. It is the presence of God's justice. God cannot, God will not deny his own essence, nature, and character. You and I have declared war against God through sin, rebellion, folly, selfishness, stubbornness, and self-righteousness. The wrath of God remains on those who reject the Son of God. In the Old Testament alone, with a constellation of some 20 words, on some 600 occasions, the Bible speaks of the wrath of God. Some of you are here, or listening, and you will think, God does not have any wrath against me. I do what I want, I think what I want, I go where I want, I say what I want, and God does nothing. Maybe there is no God. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe I'm the exception to the rule. My dear friend, God's wrath exists in two forms. There is his passive wrath and his active wrath. The passive wrath is not that you are getting away with anything, but you are storing up everything. I'll read it to you. Romans 1 and 2 speaks of the passive and active wrath of God. First, the passive wrath of God, Romans 1.18. God's wrath is revealed. A few verses later, it says, how is it revealed? God handed them over to their sick, selfish, sinful desires. God's passive wrath is when God says, you go do what you want to do. This is like Judas Iscariot coming to betray Jesus. Jesus looks at Judas Iscariot and says, What you're going to do, just go do it. I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to resist you. I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to release you. Passive wrath is where God allows you to be you. And you're storing up wrath. You're storing it up for the day of wrath. You're not cute. You're condemned. You're not out of harm's way. You're living in the path of the wrath of God. God is not pouring his wrath on you a little bit every day. He's waiting to pour it all out on one day. Next chapter, Romans 2. You are storing up wrath. We take ourselves way too seriously. We take God way too lightly. We take our sin way too lightly. We take our rebellion, our foolishness, our our sinfulness, our selfishness way too lightly. You are storing up Wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment, here is the promise, will be revealed. Pastor Mark, God is love. Yes, He is. God loves His glory. God loves His holiness. God loves His justice. God loves His kingdom. God loves His people. Are you one of His people? Do you love his glory? Do you love his holiness? Do you love his kingdom? Pastor Mark, how could a loving God pour out his wrath on people? Here's a better question. How could a loving God pour out his wrath on himself? God is not going to do to you anything that he hasn't already done to Jesus. I believe that hard words produce soft people. You're amazing. You're one of a kind. God couldn't live without you. 
eternity without you was just something he couldn't even bear to think of because you're so amazing and special. I think that soft words produce hard people. I'm amazing. I'm special. God, you're, you're blessed to have me. It's a good thing you got me because now it's going to be better for you. I believe that hard words produce soft people. God, I'm your enemy and you want to make me family? That's amazing. God, you, you, you died for me so that I could live with you? That's amazing. God, I had a bucket of wrath and Jesus drank it? That's amazing. The good news of Jesus isn't that great until you realize the bad news of sin. Here's what I want to tell you. To be a Christian is to be saved. Saved from who? God. Saved by who? God. Saved to who? God. My dear friend, you've only got two options. I'll make this as painfully clear as I can. My job, I love you, I'm your pastor. My job is to tell you the truth. Your job is to make the most important decision you'll ever make. The most important decision you'll ever make is who is Jesus to you. The most important thing about you is what you think about him. You have two choices, two choices. You go to hell or you go to Jesus. You go to hell or you go to Jesus. Pastor Mark, I heard that we die and reincarnate, Hebrews 9.28. It's appointed once for a man to die, then for judgment. There's no reincarnation. Well, I heard that eventually everybody gets saved. No, Daniel 12.2, those that sleep in the dust of the earth will arise, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death. Pastor Mark, I heard that good people go to heaven. They do. There was only one. His name is Jesus. For the rest of us, we're going to need him to take us with him because we're not going apart from him. Number one, you go to hell. Revelation 14, 9 and 10. It is a book written by the same author as John's gospel. Here's what it says of the conscious eternal torment of hell. He too will drink of the wine of God's, what's the word? Fury, which has been poured full strength, undiluted into the cup of his wrath. Again, you're you're storing up wrath. Non-Christian, unbeliever. I'm yelling at you, not because I'm angry at you, because I'm warning you, because I'm worried about you. Someone needs to love you. Someone needs to tell you the truth. Someone needs to invite you to Jesus to deal with the biggest problem you have. And that is God's problem with you. As you are sinning, you are filling the cup of God's wrath. And then you will drink it full strength in hell forever. Some of you have been told that hell is the absence of God's presence. It's not. It's the presence of God's justice. It's the absence of God's mercy. He will be tormented. Tormented with burning sulfur, tremendous pain. Jesus uses language that it is like teeth that are gnashing, people that are weeping. There's no day or night. It is constant consciousness. In the presence of the holy angels and of the You did not know this, my friend. Satan does not rule over hell. You just met the ruler of hell, the Lamb of God, Jesus, who died so that you don't need to die. Jesus rules over heaven. Jesus rules over earth. Jesus rules over hell. There is not one inch of God's creation that will be ruled over Satan as a secondary and counterfeit king with an alternative kingdom. 
Satan and demons will be tormented. They will be sentenced. Jesus says elsewhere that hell was made for the devil and his angels. There is no possibility. There is no opportunity for Satan and demons to be saved. Only for men and women. You and I have been given an opportunity. We have been given a gift that Satan and demons do not have access to. Jesus did not die for Satan. He does not die for demons. He only dies for men and women. In full justice, they are sentenced forever. In full justice, we could be sentenced forever. Jesus will rule over you. Hear me, my friend. Jesus will rule over you forever. It will either be in cursing or blessing. This is where it says in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, both on the earth and under the earth. Everybody bends this knee. In this life for salvation, in the eternal life for subjugation, in this life for forgiveness, in the eternal life for justice. No one gets around Jesus. No one lives apart from Jesus. No one will fail to give an account to Jesus. And the smoke of their, what's the word? Torment. My job is not to be God's editor. It's to be God's messenger. This is what the word of God says. This is what the people of God should believe. Fury. Wrath. Tormented. Forever. And ever. And ever, you're an eternal being with a soul. You, my friend, will live forever somewhere. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't love Jesus, if you don't belong to Jesus, if you haven't confessed your sins to Jesus, you, my friend, are going to hell. And you don't have to. That's the good news. Like, is there any hope in this? Yeah. Instead of going to hell, you can go to, go to Jesus. Instead of going to hell, you can go to Jesus. First Thessalonians 1, 9, it said, wait for the sun from heaven. Right? How many of you are excited for Jesus to come back? Right. Oh gosh, really? Whenever. I wake up every day. Jesus, today's a good day. I hit snooze. And if he's not back by the time it goes off again, I get up, but I'm sad. I'm, I can't wait to see him. Wait for the sun from heaven whom he raised from the dead. What's his name? It's Jesus, who rescues us from the the coming wrath. How How could a loving God pour out his wrath on people? How could a just God not? I'll be honest, my friend. I get hell. Makes perfect sense. Bad guys go to jail. Heaven is a conundrum for me. Bad guys get an eternal party. See, we just don't think we're the bad guys. We're the bad guys. And Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. How does he do this? Well, firstly, he leaves glory and he comes down in humility. And God becomes a man and he lives the life that you and I, my dear friend, we have not lived. The sinless life. The surrendered life, the subjugated life. We declare war on Jesus. He comes to rescue us and we reject him. He is hated, he is despised, he is lied about. He is arrested after being betrayed by one who was handed over to Satan. Judas Iscariot. Jesus is stripped nearly naked. We take God and we flog him. We rip the flesh off his body and we beat him openly, shamefully, profusely. 
Isaiah prophesied that he would be marred beyond human likeness. That's what we did to the God who came to rescue us. The night before he died, the Lord Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is in anguish. He is praying all night. Have you ever been so anxious, so stressed, so distressed you couldn't sleep? You just, you knew that what was coming was more than you could bear. And you're up all night just weeping and crying and pleading and wrestling and struggling and hoping that something will be changing. It says that Jesus was sweating like drops of blood. And he is struggling. And what Jesus says in that moment is, Father, if there be another way, remove this what? This cup from me. What is that cup, my friend? That is the cup that is filled with the wrath of God for you. That's your cup. You're supposed to drink that cup. You're supposed to suffer. You're supposed to bleed. You're supposed to be mocked. You're supposed to be betrayed. You're supposed to die. You're supposed to go to hell. You're supposed to drink that cup. That's your cup. You filled it. You filled it. Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. But not my will. Your will be done. Jesus gets up. He is arrested. He is beaten. He is humiliated. He is flogged. And ultimately, he is crucified. And on the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God. He says it this way. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus drank your cup. Jesus drank your cup. He drank the wine of God's fury, which was poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He was tormented. Jesus took your place. Jesus drank your cup. Jesus endured your wrath. Because he loves you. Because he forgives you because he cares for you, because he is good. And then Jesus cries out in a loud voice, It is finished! And you, my friend, can receive that great gift of Jesus. And if you don't, do not think that God will spare you from what he did not spare his son from. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you are every moment of every day filling a cup of wrath that you will drink forever. And if you would give that cup to Jesus then you need not drink it because on the cross he will have drank your cup. This is why we love Jesus, amen? Amen. This is why we believe in Jesus, amen? Amen. This is why we celebrate Jesus, amen? Amen. This is really good news. So you now, my dear friend, have the most important decision you will ever make. Are you going to today hand the cup filled with your sin to Jesus and thank him for drinking it? Or will you hold it 
and for the rest of your life, keep filling it until you die to drink it. Those are the only two choices. For those of you that are not a Christian, this is where you give yourself to Jesus Christ and you give your sin to Jesus Christ. We have leaders in the back. Some of you are like, what are you trying to do? Scare me into heaven? Whatever it takes. I'll be honest with you, whatever it takes. You need Jesus. You need to go to one of those leaders. You need to pray with them. You need to receive Jesus. And you need to leave here as a Christian today. And for those of you that are becoming Christians today, we want to baptize you. Not only did Jesus die and was buried, he rose. He's a king. He's coming back to call you forth from your grave to be part of his kingdom forever. If you're a Christian, you've never been baptized. Our leaders want to talk to you, pray with you, meet you so that we can baptize you. So here's how we're going to respond. We're going to take communion. And as you, as you partake of communion, remind yourself, Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God that had my name on it. And I am so glad that Jesus died for me. I'm so glad that Jesus forgives me. I'm so glad that Jesus pursues relationship with me. Amen? That's why we take communion. As people are being baptized and as you are being baptized, remembering my old life, buried. Jesus died for it. I put it to death. I want to go forward in newness of life. And then we're going to sing and celebrate because that's what people do in the kingdom. They rejoice in the king. They thank the king. They celebrate the king. They enjoy what he has done. They enjoy who he is. So I'm going to invite you to sing and to celebrate. So I want you all to stand and I'm going to pray for you. Father God, I ask for the Holy Spirit right now to come on these people, to come in these people. Holy Spirit, we can't save people, but you can. You can change their heart. You can change their mind. You can alter their destiny. You can rewrite their history. Holy Spirit, right now, bring faith, bring life, bring repentance, bring the presence of Jesus into the presence of these room and into the presence of these people. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you drank the cup that had our name on it, that you died that we might live. That, Lord Jesus, you endured the wrath so that we could receive the grace. We come now to sing your praises. We come now to say thank you. We come now to have our burdens lifted and our souls filled at the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray.